Hello, I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for a cup of happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why, and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. My guest today is a world-renowned sex therapist and relationship expert and host of the amazing podcast, The Language of Love, which I'm excited to be her guest on very soon. She gives advice on everything about love and relationships. Really, really good advice. Follow her Instagram and you'll get some there. This is the second time she's been on A Cup of Happy. So you may have heard all about my fairy tale complex back in 2020. It is, of course, Laura Berman. Today we'll be speaking mainly about the past year or so, which has not been easy for her. Just as a warning, we talk about some of the saddest moments anyone can go through in this episode. And I'm still just astonished at the way that Laura has handled everything. Hopefully, all of you listening feel as inspired as I do when I learn of Laura's strength through what seems like an impossible time. She's a brilliant, loving, open person a natural-born teacher, and it was truly an honour to have this conversation with her today. Here's Laura Berman. Hi, Laura. (laughs) Hi. It's so good to talk to you. Oh, it's lovely to talk to you. I've been following your journey the last few years, and I'm just always, often I think, can I just pick up the phone and call Laura? Because she's so beautiful. You're so lush as a human. It's just lovely to... um... I feel the same way about you. Do you know the great thing about social media, and I know there's loads of bad things, but the great thing about it is that if you don't chat with somebody one-on-one, you do still feel like they're with you. Yeah, and you get to really stay abreast of, you know, like I have lots of friends like you that I don't talk to that often, or but but I feel like I know what's going on in their lives. (laughs) you know I'm not totally in the dark yeah I think that we've kind of when I was younger anything that was put out publicly would have been come to a show that's it nothing more and now it's this is how we're feeling today yes and look (laughs) at my cute little baby look at my baby yeah exactly yeah um so I listened to our podcast that we did ages ago and it was nice it was nice to kind of rehash everything most of the things we spoke about last time was all just about sex which I think is massively important and of course that's your thing yes one of my many things but definitely a thing a big thing oh yeah before we move forward the book that you spoke about a goddess or a porn star did that come out no I haven't written it yet I did I've done a few courses on it but I've, I got derailed, as we'll talk yeah. about, from doing almost anything. Um, so I took a year off. And now I actually have a book that's going to come out in September, an ebook that's entitled You're Not Crazy, You're Just Ascending. <laughs> because there's like this mass awakening happening 
in the world right now and people are feeling like they're going crazy, but it's actually an evolution we're going through for the first time in probably human history, but certainly in a very long time in our human memory, we haven't gone through something like this. So that's where my most recent attention has been. Wow. Okay. So that's coming in September. So we, mm-hmm. we're all going to be waiting with bated breath for that one. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, it tells you how, all, how to navigate and thrive in this wild, woolly new world we're all trying to manage. Yeah, we do need a little bit of it. I need advice on that. I think we all do because it is a bit of a crazy world at the moment. It is very crazy. We can kind of take the crazy out and make it simple. We just need a few tips. <laughs> Yeah, can't do it, you know, it doesn't have to be so hard, but you do, you know, when you get caught up in it, it's easy to feel like you're going crazy or that you're at the effect of all the darkness and craziness and assassinations and pandemics and everything else that's been happening in the world. So it's more important than ever. It can get very heavy and I think it's got very heavy for you. So I feel like it's really hard to talk about any sadness for me, I, I really struggle to talk about my own personal sadness. And I find it when people ask me to, sometimes I just want to punch them in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I got it. I know it. the feeling. I do know, you know the what feeling. I mean? Yes. You can ask me. I won't punch you in the nose. But I but you're right. Like my husband does most of the talking about the sadness in our life. You know, I pick and choose when I want to do it and how I want to do it because it is painful, but it's also important and you know, we can talk about the sadness, which we will, but I also think it's as or more important where I'm really interested in putting attention is on the healing, which we all need because we all go through trauma and drama and grief. And so the healing piece is super important. That's what's so impressive and amazing about you and your following you on Instagram and Facebook. It's so helpful and it's so selfless. So just explain to everybody that maybe doesn't know what has happened. And then we'll talk about how you're dealing with it. Because the way you're dealing with it, Laura, is so just beautiful and it's just something that I would never imagine I could possibly have the strength to do so um, yeah just tell us a bit about it what happened was on February 7th 2021 my 16 year old son who was a straight A student and getting ready to apply to college and sheltering at home during the pandemic and we live in Los Angeles so it was like hardcore shutdown here And he had been doing remote school for several months. And I had let both my boys, I have three boys, but two of them were still at home. And the oldest was, you know, in his mid-20s and living a few cities over. But the two youngest were sheltering at home with me. And I had just mentioned to a girlfriend that one of the silver linings was that I didn't have to worry about them because they were safe at home. Because in my mind, you know, any parent's mind, when your child is out of the house, there's like a small part of your conscious awareness that is always kind of with them till they're home and safe, right? So he's sheltering at home and safe. But what I didn't know at the time, I had no clue about at the time, and I was not alone as much as I want to judge myself about this. Most parents I have found, 99% of them had no, have no idea about this. 
but drug dealers are preying on our kids on social media. So I'd given my kids permission to, since that was the only way they could socialize or, or engage with anyone, I gave them free reign on social media. Obviously, I'd had a million conversations with them about appropriate behavior. I was worried maybe there'd be a naked picture or they'd say something inappropriate. You know, that was the kind of stuff I worried about with social media. But for me, as a parent, I was like, look, this is a unique situation. Normally, I would be kicking your butt off the computer and sending you outside, but you can't play sports. You can't be with your friends. So as long as you're doing well in school, go on social media as much as you want. And you're safe up in your room, I'm thinking. And uh, what I didn't know is that drug dealers are preying on our kids on social media, in particular on Snapchat, because there are the location finders and they can see who you hang out with and where you go to school and what neighborhood you live in. And uh, a drug dealer had reached out to our son, Sammy, our middle son, who was 16 at the time, and sent him a very colorful menu of drugs, you know, one Percocet for $1 kind of stuff and said that they would deliver it to the house. And so we were completely, I mean, I thought you had to find a drug dealer or know someone who knew a drug dealer before this. You know, it didn't even occur to me that they would be on social media, but they are. And 25% of kids say that they've been approached by drug dealers. 75% of them are talking about drugs online with each other on social media, but I didn't know any of this at the time. So a drug dealer, our son got this menu, decided to try something because good kids make dumbass decisions, especially when they're stuck at home with no outlets. It's totally normal of him to want to try that. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, I tried stuff when I was a kid. And we'd had a million conversations about drugs, but, you know, he had wanted to experiment and he was 16 and an idiot in that regard, like most 16-year-old ADD impulsive boys. And he was at home in a safe environment. He wasn't out with a bunch of fuckwits. No, he was just bored and curious and someone reached out to him with a tempting, colorful, emoji-filled menu and he thought, what the hell? So they came to our house while we were sleeping. He snuck outside and, you know, as easy as getting a pizza delivered, got his drugs delivered and took something. So he had said to me that morning, asked me to come into his room and talk to him about an internship he wanted to try to set up for the summer because he was trying to beef up his college applications. And so I took our youngest son to do some errands and then I came back and we went upstairs and he was at my, actually my 15 year old at the time was the one who first found him, but we both went to his room, my youngest son ahead of me, and he just turned on his heels and came running out of the room into the hallway and said, Sammy's on the floor. And I found him on the floor in what I later learned is termed the fentanyl death pose. Because what had happened is he had taken something, he thought he was taking one thing, and it was pure fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid that the drug dealers are cutting into every drug, every pill, every powder. It is 30 times more powerful than morphine and three times more addictive than heroin, which is why they put it into the drugs. First of all, it's extremely cheap. I had no idea about any of this, by the way. I didn't even know what fentanyl was before this. I knew about the other drugs, but fentanyl was something I knew very little about. But basically, they're putting it in everything because if it kills you, they don't care. But if it doesn't kill you, it makes an amazing customer. You know, you're addicted. And if Sammy had lived, which most don't, unless you're a serious opioid addict, your body can't tolerate, causes your heart to stop. And then you pass out and you fall backwards, which is why they call it the fentanyl death pose. So he had taken something that was 
counterfeit. It was pure fentanyl, which is what's happening now. It's the number one killer of young adults between 18 and 45. And he was gone. He was not breathing when I found him. We called, my husband started doing CPR. We called the paramedics. They came almost immediately, but they were unable to revive him and he was gone. And my world was completely destroyed, as you can imagine. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry that happened. Yeah. And so what was really astounding to me at the time, you know, obviously I was beside myself and barely functioning, but I had no idea at the time what had happened. So I reached out to his best friend who told me that Sammy had sent him the screenshot of this menu that this drug dealer had reached out, that he had told his friend he was going to order something. And he sent me the menu and the menu had the handle on social media for the dealer because you get in touch with the dealer and the dealer brings it to your house. So I go running to the cops. Well, I went running to the police who were still in our house at the time and said, look, we can find him. And they're like, sorry, you know, I was shocked. They said, Snapchat won't help us. They won't give us the information on this dealer. This has been happening everywhere. We don't even bother asking them anymore because they just cite privacy laws. And all they'll do is take that dealer's profile down, which first of all, makes it harder for us to find them, you know, to catch them. But secondly, they just pop up with another profile two seconds later. It's not like they need their followers. They find you, you know, so. So they didn't investigate it at all? They just didn't bother? No, I said to them, let me order drugs right now. I can't believe I had the wherewithal at the time, but I was like, let me just order some drugs. He'll come to the house. You can arrest him. And they refused to do it. They said, no, we have to bring narcotics in. We have to bring, you know, they have their procedure. If I had had my wits about me, I would have said, screw you, I'm doing it, you know, but I didn't. And you would have done it first. They did eventually find the guy, but unfortunately, I mean, it's a whole political thing in California right now where they're defunding the police and not wanting to put people in jail. And so the police actually found the guy, felt like they had enough evidence to take it to the DA, took it to the DA, and the DA decided not to press charges because Sammy had gotten the drugs on Thursday and taken them on Sunday. And the DA decided that that was a hole in the case because theoretically it might not have been the drugs. The drugs he took on Sunday might not have been the ones he got on Thursday. I mean, it was a bogus reason, but basically it's a political reason. So that person is walking free and probably killing more people right now. So when I discovered that that night, you know, when the police said to me, I was beside myself and I, I think I must have been screeching or keying. I don't even know what the hell I was doing. But my husband, knowing me as he does, he's like, because I, I was like, wait, we're not going to try to catch him. He's out there. Like I was, wait, we can't do anything about this. And he said, you know, why don't you just put it on Facebook? Because at least you have to let other parents know what's happening. I was like, okay, that's something I can do. You know, there's yeah, there's yeah. something that will make me feel less helpless. So I don't even remember what I wrote. I don't know how I found a picture. It, like, it took five minutes. I just said, this is what happened. Watch your kids. And then the next thing I knew, you know, there was an onslaught of media and everything else. And I didn't want to do it at all. But each time I was asked, I felt like, I had to because even if I saved one kid's life, you know, the news needed to be out there. So I did it for, I said, it's okay, so I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to do this for a week 
and I did every possible outlet you can imagine. And then I stopped for almost a year. And it made a massive impact. I really think it did. You know, whether people follow you or not, we saw you on the news. And I do believe, and you'll never know if you've saved anyone's life, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah. No, I still hear from people all the time that they, I've gotten hundreds of emails and messages from parents and even some kids who have said that they feel like that conversation stopped their kid from, or they were now aware of it and went and talked to their kids. And they found out that in fact, their kids had been approached by drug dealers and that they had been considering using stuff and they had no idea. It's a conversation that had to be brought to the table that no one even knew to bring. I mean, like you said, I'd never heard of fentanyl before that either. I had no idea. I, and I didn't realize Snapchat was such a thing. I had no idea. And every mother, every every parent should know that, but it doesn't make it better. No, you know, no. It makes you feel, I mean, doing that helped me feel a little less helpless, which doesn't resolve the grief at all. But it made the grief a little bit easier to hold because to try to hold that kind of loss and feel so completely helpless about what was happening and how it happened and that it was going to continue happening and more kids were going to die just made it so much harder. So from that standpoint, it felt like, you know, something I could do. And I will say that that advocacy it has really helped my husband. It's not where I find healing I mean, I'll do it and I'm willing to do it. I just did a press conference with two senators who are helping us pass legislation to hold social media more accountable, like situations like that. And with you and with certain people, like I'll go on and talk about it. But really, it's my husband who has been doing tireless advocacy work. And what I find so, you know, it's such an interesting commentary on how differently we all handle grief, like for him. The healing really is helped by the advocacy for me, you know, I'll, I do it, but, but it's not, it's more emotional and physical for me. You're both grieving the same thing, but in different ways. How does it affect your relationship? Well, you know, it's interesting because we very quickly, we connected with one of the world's grief experts, some of my old Oprah producers, when I used to work with Oprah, when she was still on the air, had seen the story and on their own reached out to a man named David Kessler, who's one of the leading experts in, in grief and also lost his son to drugs many years ago. And so they put me in contact with him and he actually made a house call a few days after Sammy died, he was in our backyard and was a huge support to us. And he was the one that taught me because I was really struggling because I had a story as a therapist and the way I was handling it that like, there's a way you're supposed to do it, you know, and that everyone else, you know, that my husband, like for me, it's feeling the feelings and, and talking about Sammy and not hiding as, you know, like, having his pictures around and speaking his name and facing it emotionally and letting yourself feel it. And my husband for a really long time couldn't even look at a picture of him. And I had a lot of judgments about that. And David kept hitting home to me, like basically that I have no right to be judgmental. There is no wrong way to grieve. And he's correct in that. There is no wrong way to grieve. Everybody has their process. Everybody goes at their own pace. And it's not my job to judge his way. It's not his job to judge my way. And I think that really saved us a lot of pain, <laughs> that, that constant reinforcement 
by David Kessler because it has allowed us to really have grace for each other's process. And he is doing, you know, he's he's doing really well, but he has gone about it in a very different way than I have. It is hard to accept other people's style sometimes. You kind of want them to understand you and you think, well, if you're doing it differently, then you don't understand me and you don't see me kind of thing. And then, Or I just had a story that it was going to limit me in somehow or that I had, and it does in a way, because in the beginning, especially now, not so much, but in the beginning, you know, I couldn't have pictures of him all around the house and I freaking wanted to, you know, like there were things oh, like okay. that. Right. Because you had to be sensitive. Yeah. And what I've learned as I've moved through my grief and moved more toward grace is that that's part of grace is having grace for his pain as well. And I think we've done a really good job holding space, you know, he'll, and what's really, what's really nice about it. I mean, he said to me probably a few days after Sammy died, he's like, you know, I know a lot of couples don't make it through this kind of loss but we're going to make it and we're going to be okay. And I said, yeah, you know, I think we will too, but you need to know that I can already tell you, I am going to be a different human being on the other side of this. Like I am not going to be the same person you married. I already am not. Every cell in my body has changed and I have forever changed. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but you know, you just have to be willing. And he has, God bless him. He has rolled and risen, rolled with the changes and risen to the occasions every time. He doesn't let me down. He loves every single bone, every single cell of you. Yeah, if even that if I annoy the shit out of him. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it seems to be the case. He's had a lot of compassion and grace for me. And it's also the kind of thing where he can look at me and know that I have Sammy on my mind just by the expression on my face or, and vice versa. You know, we, we don't need to speak, you know, we just know because we're both experiencing the same thing. And that's a really bonding and special thing in a way. How is it with your kids? How is it mothering your children now and, and guiding them through it? Yeah, it's been, they're both very different too. My oldest has done, you know, is very emotionally attuned and has done so much emotional work on himself through the years that he's been very able to hold all this, to process it, to talk about it. You know, he's definitely a processor and a talker by nature. My youngest is all physical. You know, he does not want to talk about something deep to save his life. And he also is prone to anxiety. So he stays really busy. He plays eight instruments. He's surfing. He's playing baseball. He's playing music. He's running around with his friends. He just um, doesn't like to sit still for a minute. Yeah, because sometimes if you sit still, then you have to think about the horrible stuff. He has to think about it, right. So he doesn't like to go below the surface and he does struggle with anxiety and we put him into intensive therapy for the first six months, which I think really helped. Mm, how did he feel about going into therapy? Did he want to go or was it like you should? It was, I think a part of him wanted to go, but of course he would have preferred not to ever talk about it, but he knew he was struggling. I mean, he was really traumatized. Of course, it's his brother, it's his mate, it's his friend. Yeah. And he found him, you know, he was the one that saw him first and there was all this fear, just like about, you know, for a kid to wrap their head around that, you know, my brother was here one minute and now like made a mistake and is dead. 
he suddenly connected with how fragile life is. It caused huge anxiety in a little 16, you know, 15 year old who's quite scary. Yeah. So he complied and we also didn't give him a choice. I mean, I was just like, this is happening. There's no way you're not getting this support and you're going to do it. And he complied. And I think it really helped him with some coping strategies and dealing with the anxiety and talking things through. So, you know, they all handle it differently. And I just kind of let them, you know, because I that's the mantra. There's no wrong way to grieve. I know. So with your process, I've seen you doing lovely things. You're dancing in the garden. And at the beginning, I saw that you went to uh, like a retreat, like a grieving retreat thing. Well, it was sort of self-made. Yeah, tell me about it, because it looked like a really beautiful, kind, caring environment that, you know, not everybody would think is even a possibility at that time. No, no, it was such a gift because 1440 Multiversity, which is in like near Santa Cruz, California and Scotts Valley, I had done some retreats there. It's a gorgeous retreat center in the middle of the Redwood Forest. And so when they heard the news, like everybody else, they reached out to me and they said, hey, we're closed for COVID, you know, we're shut down. But if you want to just come and retreat, you know, and hide out from the world, let us know. And I was having this experience in the midst of this week of press and, and trying to wrap my head around what had happened like a couple of things became super like crystal clear to me almost immediately. The first was I've been through many deaths before of my mother, of my father, of my grandmothers, of people I cared about. I'd been with all of them when they died. I was very used to grief, but in all of those cases, I was prepared, you know, they were dying for a while before they died. I had never... And they'd lived a life. They'd lived a whole life. Yeah. And they were ill for a while. So I could process it, you know, with Sammy, not only was he my child, which makes it astronomical, but also it just really hit home to me in the same way I think it did for my son, how fragile that anything can change in a minute, that we think we know what's going to happen a minute from now, an hour from now, a month from now, we have no freaking idea. And my next thought was that it was such, it really like, I viscerally, physically understood what a insanely phenomenal gift it is to be alive and to be in this body and the fact like like it's a miracle that we even exist that that sperm got with that egg and those in those nine months nothing happened and we were born and that we're here and we're still here is like it really hit me and it also hit me that I really wanted to live and I know that's not even that common in mothers, because Lord knows I've talked to thousands of mothers who've lost their children since this happened. But for me, for whatever reason, I was immediately clear that I wanted to live not only for my other kids and my husband, but because of the gift of life I'd been given and how fragile it is. And so I knew immediately that I wanted to live. And I know a lot of mothers are just waiting to die and would rather go with their children. I had an opposite reaction to that. And I can't say it's only for my other children, although that was a huge part of it, but it was, it just was the way that it happened for me. Did that hit you at the retreat place or was it before the retreat? No, this was before, but it's the reason I went on the retreat because what I then realized, and I knew this in every cell of my body, was that if I didn't really do something 
to be fully with the pain that I was in and start processing it and letting it be expressed out of me that I was going to die. Like I really, and I had already had that experience after my mother died. I didn't properly grieve. I tried to bypass it and move to meaning. I stayed busy. And within a year I had breast cancer and I didn't have any of the risk factors and I already knew as a therapist and through my own life experience that when you don't really process your emotions, you know, it makes you ill. At least, you know, I think that's true for all of us, but certainly for me. So I knew I probably wouldn't make it. I probably wouldn't keep living if I didn't do something drastic. And I don't know how I had the balls to do this. And God bless him for, for holding it with such sweetness and not making me feel bad for one second. But I went to my husband three or four days after Sammy died when he needed me the most. And I told him, I said, look, I really feel like I'm going to die if I don't go away. And I never left my family other than for work for more than three or four days. And I said, I'm going to go for a week into the Redwoods and I'm going to pound my pain into the earth and I'm going to cry and scream in a way that I can't do here. And I'm, you know, I need to do this or I'm not going to live. <laughs> and he didn't even question it or challenge me. God, I mean, I can't believe it. I mean, not that he would have or could have, but he was so sweet about it. And I went with one of my close, nearest and dearest friends who's really wonderful at holding space. You know, she's one of those friends that can be with your pain without having to fix it or start bawling with you. You know, she's compassionate and obviously was deeply affected by what happened, but she's one of those people that can really hold it. And she became my grief concierge. Just to be there with you. Yeah, she was my grief concierge. So she organized everything. And so I got all my healer friends. They were working with me on Zoom. A few of them lived near there and they came to work with me one-on-one. She orchestrated everything with 1440. When we got there, the house was filled with like all kinds of yummy food. And they had put a framed picture of me and Sammy by the bed and all these blank. I mean, they were so wonderful. And I spent a week there doing body work, doing breath work, doing grief yoga, walking, sitting on the mother tree of the Redwood Forest for hours at a time and crying. And it was one of the most beautiful, and I think it really saved my life. And I decided in that during that time, and I'm still going to do it, I'm starting the process now that I can finally function again, but I decided that I'm going to raise the money to bring grieving mothers into the Redwoods and give them the same experience because everyone who goes through this kind of loss should be able to experience this. I wouldn't have been able to afford all of this if 1440 and my friends hadn't been gifting me. And I know most people couldn't afford it. So I am going to raise the money to bring women so they don't have to pay for it to bring moms. I mean, eventually all parents, but I'm going to start with the moms to bring them and, and retreat. That kind of thing can be quite expensive. Oh, yeah. And most people can't afford it. Right. You know, but to go to nature is free. You know, but it's having the right people with you and, Mm -hmm. you know, doing the the right type of therapy that can be really helpful. And being supported in releasing it. You know, it's very scary. And that's the reason I made all those videos that you were referring to. Yeah, we don't know how. And we're also so scared to go into the pain. We imagine that if I let myself feel all the pain I feel right now, 
that it will carry me away and I won't recover. It will kill you. You feel like it will kill you. But you're smart enough to know that it's actually the opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to show in all those kooky videos of me beating the crap out of a bunch of pillows or crying or dancing or whatever, is that when you allow the energy to move, you know, emotions are just energy in motion. And when you allow them to move through you, not only do they not take you over, but it only takes, you know, five to 10 minutes. And then it's like the pressure valve has been released and you feel clearer and calmer and can access grace more easily. And it doesn't mean it's all gone, you know, but that amount has come out and it's not stuck inside. And that's where illness and chronic depression and anxiety um, are rooted and not really being able to release those emotions. And the emotions have a physical release when you allow them to. It can make you sick. I know that, that's for sure. Even a slight upset can make you sick, but this is huge. There's the filing method that my mum taught me, but I think it's probably a bad idea. <laughs> what is the filing method? She said, I mean, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Um, she said, you can file it and put it away and shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> which is of course what we want to do right but she adds that every now and then you can go into the file and have a look uh-huh and feel what you got to feel and then you just put it back in but you can't have it out all the time you know no no you can't have it out all the time and I do think that's a smart that's a smart mama the problem is that most people it's not optional to go back in you file it for too long you know, you kind of Yeah, just... you file it for too long or you never want to pull out that file again. Who the hell wants to feel like crap, right? So if I can keep that buried, I'm going to keep it buried, right? That's our instinct. And there is a time and place, you know, when you have to go and perform a concert, you can't be decompensating about something that's upsetting you. So you do have to be able to, at certain times, put things away, right? The way that I would describe that, and I have done this at times all through my life is I just imagine a container, you know, any kind of container, Tupperware to a beautiful box, and I put it in there and I put on the lid, but then I say, I make an appointment with it and I keep the appointment. So I say, and this is how I would amend your filing system. You put it in the file or you put it in the box and then you say, okay, I can't feel you now. I'm putting you away, but at 8 p.m. tonight, I'm going to allow myself to be with you or tomorrow at four, you know, a time that you are safe and not needed to perform and you can surround yourself. And then when that time comes, you don't blow it off. You show up for yourself. And then all you have to do is you don't even have to think about what's in the box. All you have to do is get really, really quiet and then just do a very gentle scan of your entire body with your conscious awareness, almost like a Xerox machine slowly scanning your body. And you will see that in the center of your chest, it feels like a rock is there or in your belly or in your throat or behind your eyes or in your back. And all you have to do is put all of your awareness on that sensation and just like you're sitting next to and holding the hand of a best friend with that sensation. You just have to quietly put all of your awareness there and soften yourself and be willing to let your body do whatever it wants to do. And then your body literally takes over and you will say, okay, I want to beat the shit out of something or I'm here come the tears or 
I want to scream into a pillow or whatever. You just let your body do what it wants to do to release what was in the filing cabinet and then you're done. I mean, it's it's really physical. It sounds to me like it's like a very, you're holding it literally in your skin, which is yeah, where the sickness cells. comes in. Yeah. And there's so many beautiful books out there. I think it's Bessel van der Kolk who wrote The Body Keeps the Score. Dr. Levine wrote Walking the Tiger about how our body holds emotions that are unexpressed, get held in our body and cause inflammation, pain, inflammatory diseases, cancer. So it's really important, not to mention that just because you're repressing something, it doesn't mean that it's not affecting you in a million different ways emotionally as well. So it just comes out in a different way, maybe not in the way directly related to the issue you're avoiding, but it will come out in other ways. So you can't go over, under, or around emotional pain. You just can't. I mean, you can for a short time, but ultimately you'll either get physically ill or have a complete breakdown or become chronically depressed or be in constant physical pain or whatever it is. You have to go through it. You have to face it and let it express. And I promise you, it's so much easier than you think. It does not take you over. In fact, the opposite. Do you think it's something that people can do on their own? Yeah. I mean, since this happened, pretty much every day, and it was, and it's sometimes hard to do because I'm very happy when I have a good day, you know? And when I wake up in the morning without the tragedy immediately on my mind, you know, which happens more and more with the passage of time, why the hell do I want, <laughs> you know, I don't even want to go there. But I have made a commitment to myself and my body that every day I just take 10 minutes before I like get too busy in my day and I just go into my little cozy cushioned area in my, you know, meditation corner and, you know, my family knows not to bother me. I, it's, I close all the doors leading to it because, or sometimes I'll even say to my husband, I got to go move some emotion if it's coming up, but this is on days that nothing's coming up. Regardless, every morning I go, I sit quietly I ground myself. I have some grounding meditations on my website. If you go to the quantum love page of drlaraberman.com, it's super easy to just ground into your body because we like to stay up in the clouds and out of ourselves when we're not wanting to face something. And then I just do that gentle body scan I just described. And then I'll feel something. And then I just sit with it. And sometimes nothing happens and I'm just breathing with it and listening to music and just sitting quietly with myself and setting some intentions for the day. But nine times out of 10, something wants to happen. I want to move my hips and dance around the room. I want to scream into a pillow. I want to cry. You know, something wants to move and I let my body take the lead and I don't think you don't try to come up with reasons why you're feeling that, oh, well, I must be upset because of what my husband said to me or because, you know, you don't have to put thought there. You just have to be with the sensations and allow your body is like waiting with bated breath for you to let it do this. And it will immediately do something if you let it. How did you come up with this? Is this something you learned on the <laughs> retreat? Well, in part, it's my version of what's called somatic experiencing therapy. So leading up to this in my career, you know, I'm a therapist, a talking doctor, as my kids used to call me when they were little. 
but I'm a talking doctor who has over the past several years done significantly less talking and a lot more body work, body awareness, somatic experiencing, which in my experience professionally and personally is one of the best treatments for PTSD, trauma, extreme loss, you know. And so there's a whole field of somatic experiencing where you go beyond thought and you really go into the body and where the emotions or the pain or the loss or the anxiety or the trauma is being held in the body and you let that release. And I was so astounded by how powerful that was, not only in my life, but as I started to use it with my clients and groups that I worked with. So I was sort of well, I'm no expert, but I was, you know, it's not my professional area of expertise, but it was certainly in my toolbox and something I was using more and more in my own life and with my clients. And so this stems from that. This is a way, what I'm describing is letting, is a form of somatic experiencing that is beyond thought and is really goes directly to the body's wisdom. When your mum died, did you put these things into place after you realized that you had cancer? How, how did you heal yourself from this cancer? Did you have to do the chemotherapy and the operations? or I did. You did? Oh, gosh. She died in 2011 of what was ultimately breast cancer that started in her left breast, and it metastasized, and she relapsed, and you know it was over the course of 15 years, so she was healthy in between. But it started as breast cancer. And when she died, I grieved. I mean, that was, she was like, we were very close and very meshed. And that was the greatest loss and continued to be the greatest loss of my life until Sammy, even with all the other losses. I didn't even know, really know about this back then. I was a talking doctor still (laughs) only. And I was also doing a five day a week radio show on Oprah Radio. I was launching two television shows that I was starring in on the Oprah Winfrey Network, which was launching at the time. And I was her sex, love and relationship expert on her own show, you know, on her Oprah Winfrey show. So you were too busy. You couldn't breathe. I couldn't. And so I used the crap out of that container slash filing system that you referred to. But you I, didn't open it. You were like, I did it not open that <laughs> filing cabinet to save my life. And I was very grateful to have it. And what I did do, though, is I definitely started to reawaken spiritually with that loss because I so deeply wanted to connect with her still. So that was starting to open back up. You mean like talking to her? Yeah, talking to her, sensing her, feeling her, connecting to the idea that she was energy and energy never dies. But I was more in that realm. She's still here. I can contain this. you know. And then within a year, I had breast cancer in the same breast she did. And for the first time in my adult life, I had to stop my life. And my kids who were all at home, my oldest was in ninth grade and had just, he was extremely close. All my kids were very close to my mom and this was their first huge death. And now their mother, had, and their, she had died of cancer and now their mother had cancer and was going through chemo and was bald. And so my ninth grader at the time became suicidal. My third grader, Sammy, started really struggling with anxiety and my youngest was having panic attacks and school refusal. And so 
My husband, God bless him, was the world's best concierge. He was wonderful, but the kids were all falling apart and I was trying to hold it together and, you know, sick. And so I, all my usual things of therapists and medication and evaluation, you know, none of that was supporting them. And I was desperate. So out of desperation, the mother of invention is desperation, right? Out of desperation, a friend of mine had told me about this psychic medium who has since become one of my greatest teachers. Um, and I write about her in my book, Quantum Love. Her name is Therese Rowley. One of my friends had told me about her. She was in Chicago. And I had been to a few psychics and mediums when I was in college and high school, but I wasn't someone who was really in that world. But So I kind of tentatively went to her out of desperation with the most squeaky wheel. Like as a mom, you're always attending to the squeakiest wheel. You will know this when you have your second baby that... The squeaky wheel, you know, the, the biggest issue gets the sort of you have to triage sometimes when they're all losing it. So my suicidal one at the time was the one that I was most worried about. So I went to her and I told her what was going on. And she's like, let me tap into his energy field. Meanwhile, the kid's at school. He had just recently told me that you're a 40-year-old woman looking for meaning in self-help books. You know, he poo-pooed anything spiritual. He was really into science as any teenager, he thought I was a complete idiot, you know, which they all do of their parents. But I, but I go to her and she, she's like, let me tune into his energy. And then she pops up in her eyes. She goes, oh, he's clairsentient. And I had never heard of that before. But what clairsentience is, like clairvoyance is when you can see beyond, right? And you hear about clairvoyance a lot. There's different kinds of clairs. But clairsentient is she explained, is when you can feel what other people are feeling. It's kind of like what you would hear about today as an empath. But she said, but in his case, as in the case with many people who are empaths or who are clairsentient, he doesn't know the difference between what he's feeling and what everybody else is feeling. And so he's picking up the feelings of everyone around him. And it made so much sense when she explained this because he had been diagnosed with, like they were saying to me, the evaluators, maybe he's got some sort of Asperger's or autism, which he didn't, because the clinician who was evaluating him would like smile. She's like, he can't read facial cues. And I hadn't had that experience with him. She's like, you know, I was smiling at him with a big grin. And I said, what am I feeling? And he said, sad, you know? Because she was really feeling sad. She was actually sad. He saw through it. sad at work about something, who knows? But like she thought he had some, you know, social learning disorder. And when, when I would take him to big groups of people, he would get furious and start acting out. And I didn't understand. So what she was saying made a lot of sense. And she said, so what you need to do is be super careful about your mood and how you're feeling when you go into the room with him. And I was like, oh, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm always, I never show him when I'm upset. And she's like, that doesn't matter whether he sees it and he senses it. So she's like, you have to really, she taught me first. She was the first person that taught me how to ground, how to move into sort of that calm state, go into his room in that very clear, calm state. So I did that as he came home from school. And then I told him what I'd heard. And I was like bracing myself for him to like roll his eyes or make fun of me. And he's like, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I think what you're saying is true, which shocked me because that was not his personality at the time. And then I said, okay, well now I'm going to do the second thing she said to do and give you a grounding hug, which she explained to me, once you're grounded and in this calm state, give him a hug and just send love 
from your heart into his and then down into the ground because he's not grounded in his body. He's all over here feeling everyone's feelings. So I was like, let me just give you this hug. And he comes to me, you know, he barely let me touch him at the time. And he comes to me and he just melts. And to this day, I mean, that was when he was in ninth grade. Now he's 25. He still loves and asks for grounding hugs whenever he's struggling. But it really changed his life because, and I didn't say another word because I couldn't seem too invested, but he came to me a week later. you understood. You finally understood him. He understood. And he oh, came to me a week later and he's like, you know, I was at my locker today and I was in a really good mood. And then all of a sudden I got really, really angry and I didn't know why, but I looked over and I saw there was a girl a few lockers down and I realized, oh, she must be angry. And I was like, okay, now he gets it. And it really changed. That was the beginning of his real healing and stepping into his power and no longer being depressed or suicidal. And it really flabbergasted me because I was like, WTF, like, what is this? Why is this working? So of course, I had to geek out and understand what clairsentience is and how it works and what the science could possibly be behind this. And that's what led me ultimately to quantum physics, which is what led to Quantum Love, that book, my latest book. So that was that whole journey. That's kind of magical. It is. I mean, I guess that helps you heal. If you know your babies are okay, then, you know, you can be okay. And it was my beginning of understanding and understanding this more metaphysical realm of our emotional lives, which I didn't after my mother died, but I did by the time Sammy did. It's a bit of a ripple effect, isn't it? When we're sad, we can get very much into our sadness and very focused on how we're feeling. And actually, it does affect other people, whether they're clairsentient or not. Oh, it affects everyone. It's going to affect everyone. So, you know, we have a responsibility to try and be okay. It's just hard to do that when something so massive happens. Yeah. And you're allowed not to be. And you're doing a great job. Yeah, right, exactly. For moments. Yeah, I think when you have kids, it's like, I remember that scene in... Have you ever seen Love Actually? Yeah. There's one scene where the mom she finds out that the husband is cheating on her and it's Christmas. And she knows that he's bought a necklace for someone, thinking that it was for her. Mm -hmm. And um, she goes to open the present under the tree and it's a Joni Mitchell CD. It's not the necklace. Right. I do remember this. Oh my God. And I remember that scene of her, she, she begins to cry and then she hears her children walk through the door and she wipes her tears and she stands up straight and she goes, hello, darlings, everything's fine. And I just think, oh my God, that poor woman. But she has her moment and then, she, you know, she tries to... And she put it in the filing cabinet. But in real life, you have to go back to it, right? You can't just put it in the filing cabinet and go away. No, yeah, exactly. You're not doing anyone any favors, most of all yourself, if you do that. But you sure, you don't want to spew it out all over your kids and ruin their Christmas either. No, exactly, you know. But I do try, I do show my grief to my sons. You know, I don't wallow in it in front of them, but I feel like it's important for our children to see us sad when we're sad and know that we can, it's okay to be sad and it won't take you over or ruin your life. Imagine if you didn't, if you completely hide it from them, they'll think that, you're not human, I suppose. They won't accept their own sadness. And they'll think that you're a heartless bastard, you know, really. Well, yeah, that too. But it's really more the prior 
I remember when my mother died, my youngest eventually came to me and said, you know, I never see you cry about guapa, they called her. He's like, he's like, I don't, mommy doesn't cry. I don't see her cry. Are you sad that she died? And I realized, you know, because I had been hiding it from them because I didn't want to scare them. They were little and I didn't. And so I wouldn't cry in front of them. And then I, that was a big lesson for me. I was like, I was like, no, I cry all the time. I just try to cry, you know, not to do it in front of you. And he said, why? And I was like, I don't know why. I'm going to do it from now on. Oh, bless. So, yeah. Oh, he probably thought, well, maybe she doesn't care. Yeah, <laughs> you know? or what's going on? Or maybe she doesn't cry. Is it okay to cry? You know, yeah. it was Am I confusing. allowed to cry? Yeah. Do adults not cry? Are their tear ducts dried up? You know, no, actually not. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been lovely to chat with you today. And I'm sorry that it's about something sad, but I have to say your openness and how you're dealing with this, it is helping other people. And I know it doesn't make it better and it doesn't bring it back. It doesn't bring Sammy back, but it does help other people. It helps me. It helps many, many mummies. So thank you. I'm here to help. That's my purpose, to help us all learn to love and be loved better and live and grace. So here's one more way that I've turned out to be doing that, but I'm very grateful that I can, and I'm really grateful it's making a difference. Before you click off, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you, whether you listen to every episode or you've only just found us today. It means so much that you're here on this happiness journey with us. My understanding of happiness is changing and evolving every time I speak to one of my amazing guests. But what I really hope is that you're getting something out of it too. That's why we do this. I want you to be able to live a happier, more fulfilled life. And one of the easiest ways to do that, as we've learned, is to help the people around you improve theirs. So here's my challenge to you. Think about one thing that you learned from my guest today. Really think about how it could change your happiness or improve your happiness. Now, tell one person. Just one person will do and make their day a little better. Share the love. Thanks again for listening. See you next time for another cup of happy. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.